I'm going to keep this train on track, just like the Pat Metheny song. Sorry, go ahead. Perfect. Hey, Prog fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and I am joined tonight by... Lee. And Craig. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished and unfiltered opinions of the music and personalities that make this genre so great. As always, you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. Now, Craig, you said we're on Instagram as well, right? Yes, we are. UP3Show. Awesome. Sweet. If you just can't get enough of us, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcast. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find our show. So as we get into the episode tonight, I'm really excited about this one. We normally go around and we talk about what we've been up to and what we've been listening to. I'll start with you tonight, Craig. What have you been listening to and what have you been up to recently? I went to a Red Rocks show the other night. I saw a fake Led Zeppelin concert. Uh, the band's called Get the Lead Out. All right. And it was awesome. They were great. Midway through, they said, hey, we're not trying to impersonate Led Zeppelin, so that's why I look more like Elvis Presley. <laughs> and the guitar player looks more like Robert Plant. Turns out they're from Philly, my hometown, which was kind of cool. Just a really wonderful show. I've been playing a lot of jazz piano, and then I went to see a jazz show. Not really open mic, but different jazz musicians from around Denver get to sit in. And that has pretty much cured me, at least for the time being, of wanting to ever play jazz piano again, because there's a lot of good musicians out there. Yes. I just planned a trip out to New York to see both my kids, as well as Rick Wakeman. Oh. Got great seats, and I got an email on Friday that this show was canceled, so I'm kind of bummed. <laughs> it's actually postponed, but I'm going to be home for the date that it's postponed. That sucks. And then finally, uh, the biggest news of what I've been up to is I finished reading Dune. Yes! yes, Just in time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. For me, it took a little while to pick up, but I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Welcome to the cult. I mean, the, the fandom. That's right. Welcome to the Doonies. And as far as what I'm listening to, I've been following Deck Burke. Life in Two Dimensions, that title track is out on YouTube, and the album itself is available for pre-order at gravitydream.co.uk. Really enjoying it. Love Deck Burke. Love his music. Love his guitar playing. Love his singing. Also, I've been listening to the new album from Trifecta called Fragments. Adam Holtzman, Craig Blundell, and Nick Beggs after sound checking on the Steve Wilson tour. Eclectic stuff. Really enjoyable. And I definitely want to give a shout out for the videos of that album, which are really fun. Finally, uh, in preparation for Rick Wakeman, that doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, I've been listening to The Red Planet a lot. I was a little harsh on it when it first came out. It's growing on me. I enjoy it. It's uh, very atmospheric. I love that album. I know you're really a big fan, Tony. I think in general, I'm going to stop commenting on an album until I've listened to it like five times. Okay, we're going to call that the Craig rule. No, it has to be Craig's law. Sorry, you're right. I'm not allowed to comment on anything until I've listened to it five times. Yeah, that's a good law. I intend to follow that, too. 
especially with Prague, because, you know, some of it has to grow on you. Yeah, I agree. The way we need to enforce it is if you try to do that, we're going to tell you to shut your face. <laughs> we should work on bleeps. We, we got to work on bleeps. Oh, that would be a great thing. Someone says something that Lee doesn't agree with during the edit. He just bleeps it. It'll be, Craig, what are you up to? Bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> so there you go. That's what I've been listening to. Awesome. What about you, Lee? What have you been up to? Work has gotten crazy again. A couple of people have left the group I'm in, so we're farming around the additional work, which means I didn't get a lot of time in the studio this month. But got a job, getting paid. I meant to tell you guys, I was working on my car today, and I had to be cutting some bolts down. These bolts were way too long, and I really couldn't figure out what to do about it. I was getting really frustrated. And then I heard the voice of Greg Lake in my head, and you know, he told me what I should do. He said, just take a Dremel. (laughs) (laughs) It's a prog car joke that like 10 people in the world will get, and you guys are two of them, so. There's one person listening to this on a subway route now, laughing very quietly. (laughs) And and we feel very bad for you, sorry. (laughs) I'm listening to two main things. The first is the Neil Morse band release, Innocence and Danger. I am really impressed with this release. You guys know that I like Eric Gillette quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and he does a few solos on things like Bird on a Wire, and they do a prog version of Bridge Over Troubled Waters. No. Yeah. I heard about this. It's actually really good. This is sort of my transatlantic release because I did not really like the Ultimate Universe that much. And the other thing I'm listening to which you guys know I've been bugging the shit out of everybody about, is Arch Echo. Mm -hmm. In preparation for this episode, and in preparation for the coming Dream Theater tour, I was like, okay, Arch Echo, who the hell are these guys? And they are fantastic. If you're a fan of Liquid Tension Experiment, Animals as Leaders, just go give one of these tracks a listen. You will not be disappointed. This is a killer band, and they are going to go a long way. This is kind of my new total geek out thing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yep. We talked about that, and I went and bought all three of their albums and have just been astounded by these guys. I don't think I've been this taken by a band on the first listen since I first came across Echo Lips. Yep. That band out of New Zealand. Yes. And they just knocked my socks off. This band is doing exactly the same thing. Yep. So that's it for me. What I've been up to since we last talked, um, I also have a lot of uh, work stuff going on, so not as much in the music arena. I've had some electronics projects I've had to work on, but I was, I think, on Twitter, and I saw this company say, we are doing a David Bowie edition stylophone. Yeah. And I went out and I just did a Google search. I didn't realize you could get a pretty decent stylophone for like 70 bucks. So a stylophone is just like one of these little analog synthesizer it has like a resistive touch and it's literally a stylus and i didn't know that this is what david bowie it's what he did the intro to space oddity on and i actually found on a different album that he did a couple tracks that i really enjoy i found live versions of those where he's playing stylophone on those tracks as well and so i got one and i've been playing around with it a little bit in terms of what i've been listening to like i just mentioned i've been listening to a lot of arch echo recently And I think I mentioned last month that I've been listening to a lot of old industrial and metal stuff from the 90s. And that continued a bit because I have followed on Twitter Martin Atkins for a little while. And Martin Atkins was 
basically the person that came up with the concept of this band called Pig Face, which is a rotating cast of characters kind of band. They had members of Nine Inch Nails and KMFDM. Danny Carey from Tool has played with them. They're just kind of like a project that people come in and sit there for a little while, do a little bit of work and then leave. And the reason I've been listening to them is because I came across his book. Uh, Martin Atkins wrote a book called Tour Smart. This is a book written to bands about ways to not fuck up when you're on tour, Mm -hmm. how to negotiate with venues, how to tour properly, like in terms of what do you need as a retainer? What do you don't need as a retainer? Wow. Travel arrangements, all of this stuff. Man, that's useful. And he wrote this when he was a university professor. So it must've been like 15, 20 years ago. I had never gotten around to reading it. I wanted to. And so I started reading it and that got me back into listening to pig face. I'll have to try that. It's cool. As we also do, we like to make sure we do a quick little roundup of any new releases or prog news. And so do you guys have anything you want to make sure the listeners have in terms of news and upcoming releases? Dream Theater has announced a delay for the 2021 segment of the tour for their new album. Another COVID delay, so understandable, but sad. Animals as Leaders has dropped a new song called Monomyth, which I hope means there's a new album coming out, but... Yeah. So far, I haven't heard anything about that yet. Auri, help me, Tony, is that the right pronunciation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Auri. Auri, sort of a Nightwish-related spinoff. They released a new album on the 3rd of September called Those We Don't Speak Of. I have it. It's really, really good. I figured you'd pick that up. New Marillion is coming out an hour before it's dark. They have launched a pre-order campaign. This is similar to what they've done for a couple of their albums. They're really trying to stay out of the mainstream music machine. They've done this on a couple of albums. So the album itself won't be out until sometime in 2022, hopefully before we get to see them on the cruise. Big Big Train is streaming a new song called Lanterna. And Tool has announced a 2022 tour to finish off their last tour that, again, got delayed due to COVID. So that's cool. And then Nick DiVirgilio, Neil Morris, and Ross Jennings have announced they're forming a new trio, and they will be releasing an album called Troika out in early 2022. You know, that Ross Jennings, he's kind of all over the news right now. Yeah. He's got solo stuff. He's got this project. He's got yep. all the stuff with Haken. He has another project. Novena. So he's all over the place right now. So Craig, did you have any news or anything you wanted to make sure you mentioned? Well, there is one new album that just dropped. It's a posthumous release, if you will. Chicory Acoustic Band with John Patitucci and Dave Weckl. Oh. Uh, it's a live double album. Just came out September 24th. I haven't ordered it yet, but will. I mean, it's Chicory. Come on. It's going to be great. What about you, Tony? You guys have hit all the releases. The only thing I want to make sure I mention, one of my resources when I want to find new releases is this website. I don't know if you guys have discovered it. It's called newprogreleases.blogspot.com. No. It's just someone's blog, and they just post new releases. Oh, wow. And the big thing that I get out of it is they have tags on this blog. They'll post an album with the cover art, and then they have tags like progressive metal, jazz metal, like all these tags. You can just kind of scroll through real quick and get a feel for what's coming. And so that's newprogreleases.blogspot.com. Cool. And the only other thing I want to mention, kind of an axe to grind that I have with the industry right now, If you've been listening to the show for a while, you remember the total nightmare I had trying to get the deluxe edition of The Ultimate Universe from Transatlantic. After that, I vowed to not order major releases that I care about from Amazon anymore. 
I decided I'm going to go straight to the label. So with the most recent Leprous release, Aphelion, I went and I pre-ordered it. And thank goodness for me that I ordered the deluxe version that includes the album and the digital release. They gave me the digital copy of the album, the uncompressed wave files, on release day. And I was able to make MP3s of that, and I've been listening to that version. Mm -hmm. But to this day, I'm still waiting to get my physical copy of the album. Ostensibly, it's in the mail, and I should be getting it any day, but it's over a month since that album came out. Wow. This is a thing, like, especially during COVID, getting people albums on release day. I don't know why this is so hard these days. We know when albums are coming out. There's so much synchronicity between people that ship and the shipping companies. I don't know why it's so hard to ship a couple of days early. It gets there on the release day, what have you. Maybe it gets there a day early. You're not really breaking an embargo or anything. So that's just an axe to grind I have about the whole industry as a whole right now. Yep. All right. So without further ado, let's go talk about jazz. Tonight we're going to talk about a genre of prog that has a lot of names and none of them are probably right. Sometimes we call it progressive jazz, sometimes we call it jazz fusion, jazz rock fusion. There's a bunch of names for it, like so many other things that we talk about. You'll know it when you hear it. I got a whole bunch of audio clips that we're going to play. The three of us have been talking about different genres, and this is one that I've always really liked, so I wanted to devote an episode to it. So let's jump right in and talk about my first exposure to this particular genre with somebody who you know, Jeff Beck. Back in the mid-70s, Jeff Beck had this trio of albums, Blow by Blow, Wired, and Live with Jan Hammer. Do you remember those? I don't. Blow by Blow and Wired were in heavy rotation in my house. Absolutely. And then uh, Live with Jan Hammer was really, it's almost like the greatest hits of those two albums. These were back in like 76 and 77. Let's just jump right in and do a clip. I was deliberate in how I picked that clip because you got Max Middleton doing some really serious little jazz choppy electric piano-y stuff and Jeff Beck doing some straight ahead rock stuff. Before these three albums, Jeff Beck was kind of an R&B player. Yeah. My guitar player was a heavy Jeff Beck freak and he used to have me listen to Beck Bogart and Apathy. This particular album, it's got Jeff doing the rock chops kind of stuff. And Max doing jazz stuff. A fusion, if you will, of two styles. I see what you mm-hmm. did there. You see what I did, huh? <laughs> yeah, so we could call it progressive rock jazz, but it really was a fusion. We called it fusion. Uh, have you ever heard of Jeff Lorber? Yep. Yeah, remember his band? Jeff yep. Lorber Jeff Fusion. Lorber fusion. Yep. That's what people kind of called it. You know, Scatterbrain and Airblower, those two songs just freaking blew my mind off the Jetpack albums. Can I read a quote? No. I'm going to anyway. It's less than 30 seconds, so I think it's okay. You can't ask, man. (laughs) That that gets you in trouble. In his autobiography, Nick Mason recalls that during 67, Pink Floyd had wanted to recruit Jeff Beck to be its guitarist after the departure of Sid Barrett, but none of us had the balls to ask him. 
Following the death of Brian Jones, Beck was approached about joining the Rolling Stones, and he declined. Yeah, thank goodness for that. Yeah, seriously. So this is, you know, mid-70s, and, you know, Jeff Beck doing this fusion kind of thing. He's in rotation. They're playing songs off Blow by Blow. As I think back and reflect on that time, Mm -hmm. was this a time where all of a sudden fusion was going to start approaching mainstream? And to that end, I have another mystery clip that wasn't on the list, so I'm going to play this for you here, and I want to see if you guys can guess it. Jan Hammer, Miami Vice. You got it. Nailed it. Bing, 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 bing. All of a sudden, you've got Jan Hammer, who's playing with Jeff Beck, and every Friday night, you can hear his tunes on Miami Vice. That's how much it was in the mainstream. Jan Hammer got some airplay. I know that. It just always was interesting to me that Jeff Beck made this leap, conscious or not, to do the wired and blow-by-blow kinds of sounds. Yes. As far as what this type of music is, we had our episode where we said, what is Prague? And we kind of came up with these laws. Uh, not going to live that down. Good, let's go around the horn and name some things that we think should be attributes of this fusion. I'm going to start instrumental. Yeah, that's literally the only really common one that I have found. Of progressive jazz or just jazz? Oh, no, progressive jazz. Yeah, I think I would go with that. Yeah, because in straight ahead jazz, you do get people singing like... Diana Reeves, you get people singing. Yeah, Billie Holiday, Chet Atkins, people like that. Mm-hmm. I was going to make it even more simple and bare bones and start at jazz and what is jazz. And as I looked at the definitions of jazz and, and its roots, it almost seems like by definition, jazz is prog. Interesting. What about the definition of jazz leads you to say that? Because of the nature of the players and pushing against boundaries and the typical virtuosity, it started to meet a lot of the same criteria that we had put forward for progressive music. Okay. So, but I think there's another way to look at jazz. Sure. There is the theory aspect of it. You know, harmonically, what is jazz? Okay, go for that. Well, instead of using triads, you're using extended chords, more sophisticated progressions, heavy emphasis on improvisation. Mm -hmm. And then depending on when you're doing it, the rhythm becomes a thing. So, you know, you have bebop and then you got post-bop and we're going to talk about that shortly. And then modern jazz, which is, you know, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the rhythm is a key differentiator there. In jazz drumming, a lot of the tempo is built on ride cymbal and then bass and snare and hi-hat are there for emphasis. And in rock drumming, a lot of the tempo is primarily built on bass and snare and hi-hat and ride and toms are there for emphasis. And it has a lot to do with uh, which kind of jazz. Right. I agree. Mm-hmm. So bebop absolutely is, you know, the dotted quarter and the boom, 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 boom kind of thing. Right. A lot of triplets and shit like that. Which I'm glad we're having this conversation because in researching for this episode, I was absolutely exposed to a lot of the heavy hitters in jazz growing up. But I realized that I wasn't exposed to the history and the theory. Mm-hmm. My focus, I will call it shallow and narrow because it was mostly aligned with what my father's interests were. Mm-hmm. He was a brasswind player, so I grew up a brasswind player and listening to brasswind players. 
in the research, I was like, oh my gosh, there's this whole other bigger world and I'm not really understanding the theory of it. So you guys mentioning that I'm really interested in hearing how the conversation goes with you guys on that. And I'm probably just going to shut up and listen and learn. Back in the mid-70s, you know, really what was going on is Return to Forever, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Weather Report. In the Zappa episode, we talked about all the different musicians that came through Zappa's band. Mm -hmm. When you look at Weather Report, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, so many incredible musicians came out of there. Yes. All of them started to really flesh out progressive jazz fusion. Let me play a clip of another song that came out around that time. Stanley Clark, that's the bass player for Return to Forever, and he went on to have an incredible career. That's another tune that sort of made it into the mainstream. I remember hearing that on just the rock and roll stations of the day. Yes. So the world was kind of flirting with prog jazz fusion. When I quit playing rock and roll and went back to college for engineering, I ran sound for a band for two years that was a progressive jazz band. These guys were huge into Return to Forever. That's where I got into Al Miola, Chick Corea, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Romantic Warrior, to me, is like one of the top 25 albums ever made. My God, think about who's in that band. Oh, yeah. Stanley Chick Corea, Clark, Al Demiola, Stanley White. Clark, Lenny White. Yeah. Holy shit. I always thought of it as a super group, actually. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't know they were a super group yet. Yeah, it was before super groups. I think this is a great segue for a Return to Forever clip. Go for it. There was a bunch of musicians around that time that were associated with these bands, and they all sort of had day jobs as well. One was this guy, Hiram Bullock. He was a guitar player, and I saw him play live and just incredible jazz fusion guitar and just a monster on stage. He was in David Letterman's band. And then there was another guy who was the keyboard player on the clip we just heard named David Sanchez. In addition to being a great prog player, he was in... Bruce Springsteen's band for the first three albums. Right. I have a clip of him. I like David Sanchez. I have a couple of his albums. So he's playing a keyboard and also a wind controller in that one. That dude's super innovative, still plays. That album is just him and a drummer, and it's great. 
one of the thoughts is that Mahavishnu Orchestra, they're the ones that introduced the world to prog jazz. They were among the first. Mm-hmm. The main guy there was uh, John McLaughlin. I'll be honest, I don't really know much about Mahavishnu. I've tried to get into him a couple of times. Never really clicked, which is weird because they spawned the Dixie Dregs, basically, even though only the fiddle player ever played with the Dregs. Steve Morris has said over and over again, Mahavishnu Orchestra was among his biggest influencers. But if you look at the lineup of Mahavishnu, between 71 and 73, they had Billy Cobham, Jan Hammer, Jerry Goodman, who went on to be in the Dregs, uh, Rick Laird, uh, and then 73 to 76, Jean-Luc Pani and a couple other guys I don't know, Gail Moran, uh, Ralph Amstron. Yep. Narada Michael Walden. Yeah. Do you know those guys? Absolutely. When I went to college for music, um, my sophomore music theory teacher used to have us take apart John McLaughlin's solos Holy cow. to learn about modes. It was the way we learned Lydian and Mixolydian and Dorian modes and all that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had this weird love-hate relationship listening to Birds of Fire and the Intermounting Flame. That's really interesting. After we talked about this in the text thread, and, and I did my own research, I've got to go listen to them and learn more. They're interesting enough just on their own, and I was reading through their Wikipedia page, and I came across this little quote. There has been a resurgence of interest in Mahavishnu Orchestra in recent years with bands like the Mars Volta, Opeth, hmm. Black Midi, and the Dillinger really? Escape Plan citing them as a major influence. Wow. I can't say that I ever listened to Mahavishnu in a pleasure mode. It was always like <laughs> for school. There's differing schools of thought about what the catalyzing event was for progressive jazz or jazz fusion. Some people say it was Mahavishnu Orchestra, and some people say it was Miles Davis. Now, Miles Davis is this amazing artist, train wreck of a life. That's a whole discussion that we want to do in the future about separating the art from the artist, because this is a great example of that. There's actually a really good documentary on Netflix right now on Miles Davis's life. Really? Yeah. Fascinating. I've watched it a couple of times. He started out in the 50s just as a horn player in somebody else's band. And then in the 1950s, he started his own band with John Coltrane, Red Garland, Paul Chambers, Philly Joe Jones an amazing band, but just playing, you know, straight ahead jazz. Uh, Then in the 60s, he uh, started another quintet with Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, and a couple other guys. Still doing jazz, still, you know, acoustic jazz, kind of the regular stuff. And then in the 70s, he just decided, all right, I'm going to try something different. And each one of those periods of time was seminal in the jazz world. In the 50s, he had this album called Kind of Blue, Mm -hmm. which is like the jazz album, 5X Platinum. Everybody lists it as this album that defines a genre. So I'm going to play a clip from that, and then we're going to compare that to his electric transitional phase that, in theory, ushered in the whole progressive jazz thing. So this is early-ish in Miles Davis's career. There's your pocket, there's your groove, there's your swing, Mm -hmm. your dotted quarter notes. What stands out to me is that walking bass. I know. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. 
and it's playing quarter notes. Bum, 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 bum. Nice up and down the scale. I just really like that. Now, let's compare that to what he used to usher in the prog jazz, jazz fusion age. And by the way, it was hard to pick out a 30-second clip of this one because this is a 20-minute song. And the album is basically two super long improvisations. Again, with like Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, you know, who just said, okay, go. So here, let's listen to a little bit of Pharaoh's Dance. I like that. Yeah. And that's like 1969. Nobody had done that before. Yeah. It's all yeah. freaking new. You can kind of hear what's coming. Exactly. Yeah. So I grew up living, eating, and breathing Miles Davis. I could listen to 100 trumpet players, and I can always pick out Miles, because there's a certain vocalization to how he plays Dude, yeah. the instrument. In fact, there was a time when I was first learning trumpet. My dad went from, oh, you're learning the basics at your music teacher at school well you're going to come home and we were going to practice like muting technique no shit wow that's awesome so here's a quote from a music critic in 1994 reflecting back on that period of transition where miles started this thing jazz critic and producer bob roche recalls this to me wasn't great black music but i cynically saw it as part and parcel of the commercial crap that was beginning to choke and bastardize the catalogs of such dependable companies as Blue Note and Prestige, which were jazz labels. I hear it better today because there is now so much music that is so much worse. <laughs> That's pretty wow. cynical. Thing. It's like, yeah, I liked it then, but now I really know why I like it because everything else is so much worse. Like there's this cloaked version of racism in that about it being black music and, yeah. and, and that whole thing about jazz was always black music. I think a discussion of is jazz music, black music. I think that could be an entire episode. Do you know or have an opinion on what was bringing this more into the mainstream like some of these things were? Because for a long time, jazz had been this other music. There's some interesting stories in the Miles documentary I just watched. He had an album that was 5X Platinum, so he was the shit. He could kind of call the shots and stuff. And one of the follow-ons to that album had a white woman on a sailboat to kind of make you look like the good life. And Miles went to the record company and had them put a picture of one of his wives, for him. who was uh, very attractive, uh, a dancer. And that was, again, new and different for, A, a an artist to have that type of control over the record company, and uh, for them to sell a record consciously, you know, to identify with an African-American personality. We're not going to dive deep into this, but why was his uh, personal life such crash and burn? So in 1949, Miles goes to Paris, and they love him, and he's hanging out with French intellectuals, and he's playing music, falls in love, you know, as one does in Paris. And he comes home, and he's hanging out in front of a club, and he gets the crap beat out of him by cops for loitering in front of a club where he's headlining. Oh, jeez. I don't really know the timing of all this, but somewhere in there, he develops a uh, heroin addiction and addiction to painkillers, and, and I'm no psychiatrist, but, you know, if it swings like that, it, that's got to take a toll. I don't know a lot about Miles, but... I know that Miles is listed by a lot of musicians that I respect as an influence, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. almost universally. 
Yeah. So I know there's something there to respect in the music. Take some time, you know, watch that video. I, I and, will uh, watch that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely yeah. good. The thing that struck me is, is as a kid growing up and listening to this music and then becoming an adult and then going back and learning about his personal life, his real life of what was going on behind the music. Mm-hmm. I was both amazed and shocked that his music was as good as it was mm-hmm. because there was a whole hell of a lot going on in his real life. And then there's just like this outpouring of music. And I don't know if it was informed by it or, or what it was just crazy how prolific and amazing he was for what was going on for him. He and others like him are artists in that they only can do a, one thing mm-hmm. and that is to create. That's the impression I got in certainly watching that video and just from other like artists that I know. The really good musicians that basically have train wrecks of their lives have to suffer to be able to play blues or jazz or whatever it is. But in some cases, you wonder how true that is. Mm-hmm. In my case, I've you know, had this stand-up comedy hobby for a good 20 years, and I've seen the people that want to do it and... There are a few that I've been able to see their through line for 20 years. 99% of them last a year or two or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are a few that have made it. And by making it, that means they did tours through the Dakotas and the Midwest and slept on couches and had no jobs. And if you're going to be a musician, that's what you do. And the life of a musician or an artist or a comedian or whatever really doesn't lend itself to having a family and raising kids in a traditional sense. Very true. Like even just for me, you know, you go to an open mic and well, you go to the bar. What do you do? Well, you got to order a drink. Okay. So I go to three open mics a night. All right. It's a school night and I'm having three drinks, maybe even four and I'm trying, you know, whatever. So it's a lifestyle that, you know, you choose to adopt. Right. Mm -hmm. Comes with the territory. Exactly. I don't think that that can help but come back full circle and then inform the music, right? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you're right about your your life experience. And maybe that's what was going on. In Miles's case, just to bring it home, he was going to clubs every night, obviously. You know, he's playing, he's staying out late, and as is every other jazz musician. And I don't know why heroin was so prevalent in the world in the 50s. I wasn't alive, and I, you know, I wasn't in that culture. So it's not just Miles. There's a lot of stories of... You know, Charlie Parker, I believe, uh, had the same thing. Well, Lady Sings the Blues, all of that. Yeah, 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 Yeah. right, right. Heroin's everywhere. Just to kind of close it out on Miles, two things. One, we talked about Zappa previously, and we talked about his heavy focus on improvisation and the way that he led the band from night Mm -hmm. to night. He would point different directions on the stage to get, you know, Eddie Jobson to play a longer solo or to get uh, Ruth Underwood to play faster or something like that. Miles uh, was exactly the same way. He very much conducted his band while on stage. He was like, we're going to be doing new shit all the time. You know, he obviously one of the best musicians, but he wanted them to improvise and push the boundaries and things like that. And if you listen to some of his old albums, you can hear him barking orders and telling people to speed up and slow down or cut the groove or whatever. Mm -hmm. And another fascinating parallel is We talked about how Zappa would spend so much time in the studio and splice the crap out of stuff and, you know, build solos out of other solos. And Inca Rhodes is, you know, a combination of 
guitar solos from three different concerts that you know ended up on the album, something like that. Miles Davis, same thing. His later albums, you know, certainly ones in his uh, electronic phase, tons and tons of editing, and actually even some of his later just jazz albums. They just spent a ton of time in the studio and made loops and splices and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, fascinating parallels between uh, Miles Davis and Zappa. Huh, that's really interesting. We talked about who really had the King Crimson moment in Prague jazz. Was it Miles Davis or was it Mahavishnu Orchestra? I have a quote here. In September 1988, Downbeat Magazine interview with Chick Corea. There's this general view that Miles Davis crystallized electric jazz fusion and he sent his emissaries out. And Chick responds, nah, that's Disneyland. Miles is definitely a leader, but there were other things that occurred that I thought were equally as important. What John McLaughlin did with the electric guitar set the world on its ear. No one ever heard an electric guitar played like that before, and it certainly inspired me. John's band, more than my experience with Miles, led me to want to turn the volume up and write music that was more dramatic and made your hair move. Interesting. Yeah. I take Chick's work for it. I'm going to take Chick's word for it. There's several others in here that are worth naming in the same time period. Yeah, go for it. You already talked a little bit about Weather Report. I think they were huge. Mm-hmm. To me, Weather Report's always a very sad story because I liked Joe Zawinul, but I love Jaco Pistorius. Mm-hmm. There are some sad stories in here about people that basically died penniless or succumbed to drugs or other things. And Jaco Pistorius was one of those. And just killer, killer bass player. Really liked that band quite a bit. What happened to Jaco Pistorius? Yeah, in Weather Report, he was pretty notorious for getting into fights. He did a lot of alcohol and drugs. But really, when he got to his own solo band called Word of Mouth, then some mental health issues came out. Now he would probably be diagnosed as bipolar. And as it went on, record labels were really reluctant to sign him to anything anymore. And he ended up homeless and penniless and literally was beaten to death by a bouncer in front of a club one night. Just incredibly sad, too. Mm-hmm. But getting back to your topic, there's people like Pat Metheny, Lee Rittenauer. Yeah. They come a little bit later, but it seemed like it was trying to catch a bigger audience, but I'm not sure that it ever really did. I don't think it did. It was, if I think of my experience in the late 70s, early 80s, yep. you'd hear it. And, and it's funny, I remember my roommate in college had a Lee Rittenauer album, and we listened to it all the time. And it was like, this is great. Um, I don't know how he heard about it because it was never on the radio. Pat Metheny, same t- same thing. You know, he kind of uh, breaks through because really what we're starting to talk about now is the end of this sort of monolithic, if you will, progressive jazz followed a similar vein. So let's listen to a little... That is Long Train Home. Really? And I, I love Pat Metheny. Pat Metheny and Lyle Mays, yeah. the, that combination was just magic. This is mid-80s, and like you say, there is a bunch of different artists. Another guy that was like really pretty seminal to me was Alan Holdsworth. Yeah. And I really want to give him a shout-out. He passed away a few years back. Same thing, Penniless. 
Now, Alan Holdsworth invented his own music theory. He was inventing scales and rearranging the notes on the neck. But at the same time, you know, he was this hugely in-demand session musician. He played with Soft Machine early in his career. Uh, He played with Jean-Luc Pani. He was in the first UK. Played on the Bill Bruford solo albums. And in fact, uh, you know, the first iteration of UK kind of turned into the Bill Bruford solo band. Eddie Van Halen, Frank Zappa, Sean Lane, Steve I, John Petrucci, Neil Schoen, Gary Moore have all said that Holdsworth is one of the most advanced guitarists and most influential on their careers. You know, Tony talked about being able to pick out Miles Davis's style. Mm-hmm. I think you can pick out the style for Alan Holdsworth a mile away. In a second. That really legato stuff he was doing on the neck. And, and really sort mm-hmm. of enharmonic, you know, was always in a weird mode. Yeah, right. I got a clip of him playing on the Sahara of Snow. <sighs> Great song. And then I have a, another clip of Jeff Beck stealing his lick. Here's a song called The Pump by Jeff Beck. (laughs) It's a tribute. It's, <laughs> it's not a ripoff. It's a tribute. It's, it's a nod. It's, <laughs> it's more than a nod. That's like a whole head shake. <laughs> I love the Bruford albums, man. Those are so good. Gradually Going, Tornado, um, One of a Kind. Those are what I wish UK would have been. That's where I really learned to love Jeff Berlin. You know, that was like the 70s and 80s for progressive jazz. And my hypothesis is... It kind of hits a fork in the road, a kind of a three-pronged fork. It spawned into like smooth jazz, jazz fusion, and just popular music, and then just sort of the purest prog jazz. Smooth jazz, originally, um, I sort of liked it, but now it kind of gives me a little bit of a bad taste. But earlier smooth jazz, there's some stuff that I did like, I guess, before I became so pretentious. So I want to play... Rush hour. That is Yellow Jackets, and on guitar is Robin Ford. I haven't heard of Yellow Jackets in forever. Yeah. Yeah, I saw them at the old Eliches in the theater there. Mm. Here's where I got to take a little issue with um, calling this smooth jazz. Smooth jazz makes me want to stick my finger down my throat because I think of like Kenny G on an oboe. Mm-hmm. Like you've got in here Spirogyra, Rippingtons. I've never thought of them as smooth in any way. What makes it smooth jazz for you? 
It's just finding a bucket to put them in. It's just more hanging a name on it? Yeah. Okay. I'd lump Lee Rittenauer and this and Spirogyra. They all sort of have a similar instrumentation. They do, yeah. So I want to challenge you a little bit more on this. Smooth jazz tends to be very downbeat for me. Downbeat. And fusion is typically upbeat and more high tempo, at least in my experience. And I was just wondering what your thoughts on that are. I definitely think the smooth jazz Craig's talking about can be a little upbeat because it brings kind of the old jazz into it. But I think the prog jazz fusion starts to get more downbeat with so much more of an emphasis on the rock drum rhythms. And then when we get to metal fusion with jazz, that definitely is where the high tempo comes in for me. When we were talking about this, I went and I double-checked all their references, all their own publicity materials, their Wikipedia pages, fan groups. Mm -hmm. Everyone refers to them as fusion jazz. Interesting. Okay. Craig was talking about Spirogyra and the Rippingtons. I have a particular affinity for both of them because they were particular favorites of my dad's. And so they naturally became one of mine. When Russ Freeman were first recorded as the Rippingtons on his first album, uh, Nocturnal Playground, players on that band were Dave Benoit, Brandon Fields, Kenny G, and David Cause. Really? On the very first Rippingtons album. Jeez. <laughs> Most of those people are amazing, but Kenny G and his playing is definitely smooth jazz. Yeah, absolutely. So I was looking this up and I was following the threads on Kenny G. There's a Kenny G song, I think it's called Gone Home. Everyone would know it. I don't have a sample of it because I didn't want to pollute my computer. Kenny G is so popular in China that this one song has been culturally absorbed in China and is used at the end of the day for businesses as kind of that tone to signal that the store is closing soon and you need to go home. It's just part of the zeitgeist. Many people don't even know who the artist was or the name of the song. They just know it. When we hear the ding, ding, ding of a crossing guard coming down for a railroad, we know that a train's coming. These people hear these tones in this song, and they know, oh, the store must be closing in 15 minutes. Wow. You know, Weather Report spawned a zillion great musicians and music. Return to Forever spawned a lot of great musicians and a lot of great music. Rippington spawned Kenny G. That's an image I gotta get <laughs> you, out of you my head. You just ruined. <laughs> yeah. An entire life of enjoying the Rippingtons. Right. I'm with you. I really liked Spirogyra and the Rippingtons. I love Spirogyra. As I was doing research, a band I didn't expect kept coming up in this list was Animals as Leaders. Really? People keep putting them in this, and like I fully think of them as a prog metal band, but people kept putting them in fusion jazz. Recently, I've been trying to do some Wikipedia updates on some bands. And the categories and subcategories for Prague are screwed up all over the place. It's a mess. It's absolutely a mess. There were a lot of people that were putting animals as leaders and Tony McAlpin and people like that Mm -hmm. in these bizarre categories that, to me, don't make any sense. A lot of the articles were referring to uh, Tosin Abbasi as the foremost jazz guitar player. And I'm like, no, no, we're talking about the wrong thing. Yeah, that's that's completely a different genre to me. Uh But before we leave that. Tony brought up Chuck Mangione in our text discussions, and for like Mm -hmm. three nights in a row, I couldn't get that stupid Chuck Mangione song out of my head. Which one? You know, hold on, hold on. I probably got a clip of it. Hold on, hold on. Let me let me share. Let me share. I've got it. I've got you, Lee. I brought this up as a sample. It's going to be in my head for another two weeks. It's probably this one. Oh God, I know it. I know it. 
It's called Feels So Good. What's wrong with Lisa? Feels so good. Here's another one that I actually brought up as a sample to have on tap called Bolavia. And I listened to my dad spend hours practicing this because it is a rather challenging intro. The rolling notes. Yeah. Playing that on a brass wind is really challenging. Mm-hmm. My dad spent literally hours practicing just that one part. That was nice, though. I like that piece. A lot of his technique, my dad tried to mimic. It's like this part-time muting, very typical of jazz, that my dad had me practice. There's even like a weird technique. I, I've never, to this day, fully understood it, but I have seen jazz players play it, where they will open the spit guard purposely to change the timber of the sound wow and they'll do it while they're playing you don't want to stand in front of that (laughs) i don't really know what the label is for that style of music but it definitely all belongs kind of in the same bucket okay Mm -hmm. and i think it sort of turned into what smooth jazz is now i guess the argument i was starting to make who's the big winner who's kind of survived and Mm -hmm. who's went on to become commercially viable i don't even know if there has to be a winner i think that there's like a that's a very good yeah point. that's 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 a wrong way to say it it's more like really what it is is you know i sort of i'm just drawing these different through lines of we had the big bang in you know 1970 where fusion happened and in my mind they spawned other things and one of them is smooth jazz okay got it and then the other thing you know lee you brought up which i think is a really interesting point is progressive jazz and fusion in pop music. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to play a clip of a place where it showed up. Again, this is in the 80s, and we're starting to see progressive jazz, jazz fusion show up in different areas. Asia. That's an example of progressive jazz rock fusion music in pop music. The album before that is Royal Scam. Royal Scam. And so they really took a jazz turn on Asia. Love that album. Seminal. That song is like the perfect song, I believe. The other band I would put in here, they cross over here every now and then, is Little Feet. You've mentioned that before. What would an example song be? Okay. This is Day at the Dog Races from Little Feet off the album Time Was a Hero.
I'm trying to get to what you were getting at, Lee. Mm-hmm. It had that live improv kind of feel that was very typical of jazz because they were all recorded in a studio with all the players in a room. Is that part of your definition? Yep, definitely that improvisation feel. No vocals, which is a big deal for Little Feet. They didn't do that very much. There's a lot of modulation and changing chords in that section. And I had to cut that clip off, but there's a lot of comping going on. There's just a really long piano solo that Bill Payne launches into after that section. That's why I put some Little Feet songs in prog jazz. Now that I think about it, there are a bunch of examples of Bill Payne going off in prog land. So yeah, I buy that. And the other one I'd throw here every now and then is Almond Brothers. Songs like Jessica or In Memory of Elizabeth Reed. You know, so that's an example of bands infusing some jazz, prog, fusion, whatever you want to call it, into their regular things. UK is another example of that. I think that's interesting you say that. It seems like you put UK into that kind of jazz category every now and then. I think you're coming at it just from the first album. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't pay attention to the second album. Because I think the second album is an amazing UK album. Really? Absolutely. But they are very different albums. You're right. They're completely different bands, basically. Mm-hmm. And then there's the survivors that just continue to do what they're doing. You know, Pat Metheny, Jan Hammer, Billy Cobham, all of the mainstream guys that just continued to do their prog jazz, jazz fusion thing. Mm-hmm. This movement did spawn a bunch of other instrumental type genres and, you know, prog metal has some aspects of it. A branch of fusion prog jazz that has really grown into something big, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is this prog metal jazz. And I think that's exactly where Liquid Tension Experiment lands. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. There's a whole genre that has grown here, and it includes Tony McAlpin. It includes Animals as Leaders. It includes Stickmen. I love Stickmen. Um, which I think is great. And uh, bands like Scale the Summit. And the one that I am totally geeking out about now is a band called Arch Echo. And I'm going to play a clip right here. I'm going to hear this for the first time because you put this in our text thread and I hadn't had a chance to listen to it and I can't wait. This is Daybreak from the album You Won't Believe What Happens Next. This is awesome. Yeah, I am in love with this band. And they're opening for Dream Theater, right? Currently, yes. But now that tour is delayed. So don't know if Archeco stays on the bill. Certainly hope they do. And I have reached the point where I am more excited to see Archeco than I am Dream Theater. Yeah. And I never in a million years thought I would say that. Yeah. This style has very intricate drum lines, a lot of gent guitar. Mm-hmm. And the more percussive sounding layers this keyboardist uses, Really reminds me sometimes of Tangerine Dream. So we should listen to a Tony McAlpin clip. Yes, we should. This is Oludanese by Tony McAlpin from his self-titled debut album.
And it's just killer stuff. This Prague Metal Fusion branch, I think, is really starting to grow in Prague right now. And I'm super excited about it. I think what's carrying it out on that limb is the metal aspect of it. I think a lot of metal people wouldn't go anywhere near jazz. I don't listen to a lot of jazz, but I definitely respect it and its place in our history. I don't think a lot of metal people care. And so if a band like Arch Echo or Animals as Leaders or anyone who's doing that kind of material can bring people in and get them to go back and see some of the history, I think that that's actually really a good thing. And it will hopefully lead us into the next evolution beyond even what we're talking about right now. That's a very interesting viewpoint. I do have a jazz background, and so I love it, but I can totally see that viewpoint coming from Mm -hmm. a metal aspect and then dragging a little bit of jazz into it. One of the things that really jumped out at me was the very frenetic feel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're way upbeat. LTE very often has a very frenetic feel. Yes. Almost an uncontrolled chaos. Yeah. Teetering right on the edge of everything, Mm -hmm. collapsing. Yeah. If we go way back to the mid part of this conversation where we're talking about Miles and his live bands, often those live improvisational recordings from Miles got a very similar feel where they're just going really, really fast, calling out switches and tempo or whatever. Mm -hmm. Very much that teetering on the edge kind of feel. That's a really interesting comment. Well, what I think is good is that there's a future for music that is improvisational, music that has roots in jazz. Yes. And just is stuff that we like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that the Trifecta Band, that's a bunch of guys playing stuff that they wanted to do while they were touring with Steve Wilson. If you kind of peel that back a little bit, it's like, yeah, the Steve Wilson gig, it's good, it's paying good money and stuff like that, but what do we really want to play? To your comment about there's a future, quote-unquote, for improvisation, if we go way back to our What is Prague episode, I think that's the very definition of what Prague is. You get people who are like-minded in a room, Mm -hmm. they're going to start pushing boundaries, and then you get a natural evolution. It's a perfect fit that jazz and prog have eventually crossed paths and synced up in this way. That's a great way to put it. This was good, man. Man, this is great. We went way off on a bunch of tangents. Well, this was surprisingly fun to uh, research. It has been really fun to research. You're right, to go back and listen to this again. And uh, definitely watch that uh, Miles documentary. It really was fascinating. One uh, final thing that we like to do at the end of all these episodes is recommend things to listen to related to the show. We played a million clips here. I've got a few standouts that I think is worth recommending. The first is Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. It really is kind of a seminal jazz album. Another one is Alan Holdsworth, one of his solo albums, Secrets, one of my personal favorites. Jeff Beck, Blow by Blow. We kind of opened the episode talking about that. That's a great album. It's noteworthy that George Martin produced that. I talked about a dude named Hiram Bullock, a guitar player who played in David Letterman's band for a while. Google anything with Hiram Bullock. Just a really exciting, dynamic guitar player. And then finally, Return to Forever, Romantic Warrior. We're overusing the heck out of the word seminal, but it's just a great, great album. Great stuff. Cool. What about you, Lee? That's a great list. I'll add... Weather Report, Heavy Weather. Sure. And that's the album that Birdland came out of, which is an incredibly famous jazz song. Yeah. Other than that, anything by Arch Echo, you will not be disappointed. Can't disagree with that. Yeah. Definitely, if you have no idea where to start, start with Craig's List. And I don't mean Craig's List. I mean Craig's <laughs> List. Yeah. 
But we have talked about so many heavy hitters in this episode. In my opinion, I don't think it really matters where you start. Just pick someone and maybe make a Spotify playlist or let the Google YouTube algorithm just run through random stuff. Just go absorb this music. It's just fabulous. And just let it wash over you. There's so much good music in this genre. Totally agree. So as we exit, don't forget that you can find us on Twitter. We're at UP3Show, also now on Instagram. I think we've been on Instagram for a while, but inactive, and Craig is bringing that back to bear. You can also contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you, especially if you disagree with our opinions. Let us know what kind of topics you'd like us to cover, anything you'd like us to maybe read on the air, feedback, things like that. If you want to show us support, it's really easy. You can support us non-financially, as I mentioned at the top of the show, by subscribing on Podbean. We're at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to write a review. That definitely does help the algorithm propagate the show up. Also, don't forget that now you can support us financially if you want to help do that as well. We're on coffee at ko-fi.com slash up3show or Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. If you throw a few coins our way, it helps us keep the lights on and keep the episodes up forever. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.